Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I'm joined by co-owner and managing partner of the Locks Bagel Shop in Columbus, Ohio, Silas Caton. Silas worked as a chef for a number of years and then transitioned over to running a business and running a bagel shop. Kind of got his start out at Veritas and was kind of where he first kind of popped up on the scene, but you know, also worked at Kosheka Cocina. Probably not pronouncing that right, but he worked there for a little bit too as well. And Salt and Pine, which had a few other people on the podcast. Kevin Wang, Andrew Smith worked there during that restaurant's limited run. So it's really interesting to talk to Silas just from being involved in the Columbus food scene for so many years, kind of how he's experienced how the Columbus food scene has grown and transitioned and to what it is now and everything that he's encountered, you know, with the market and everything too. And and now where he's doing bagels and bagels isn't like a super like sexy thing or anything like that, but they made the food and wine kind of top 40 bagel places list, which is pretty huge. It's the only one in Columbus that was on there, I think uh, two places uh, up in Cleveland were on there. And that was kind of it for Ohio, but Ohio is not exactly a place that anybody would think to find great bagels, but they make really, really awesome bagels. They're kind of a hybrid in between the Montreal style and the New York style. And we get into that along with kind of best ways to store bagels and you know what makes bagels good or bad or vice versa. I know a little bit about bagels, but I don't know a whole bunch to the point where I can really tell you, oh, well, this bit more water here or whatever would make it better or anything like that. I can't really break it down from that level, but we get into that stuff and Silas's career and everything too. So it's really awesome conversation, you know, another highlight of an awesome place that we have. You know, my sister was recently out here for a few days and she pretty much went there, I think like every morning for breakfast too as well. So that was pretty awesome to see. She discovered it on her own. It wasn't even anything that I recommended. So uh, it came up ending through her Instagram recommendations, which was really cool to see too as well that she lives out in Massachusetts. So someplace in Columbus, Ohio is getting a little bit of love uh, through Instagram, you know, halfway across the US too. So you can follow Silas on Instagram at Silas Caton, C-A-E-T-O-N for the last name there, and also at The Locks Bagel Shop on Instagram too as well. Make sure to follow us at Spoon Mob. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook and everything too as well, but mainly follow us on Instagram at Spoon Mob and then check out the website SpoonMob.com for all the different chef profiles, photos, links to all the podcasts, all that stuff too. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast wherever we get your podcast from. Appreciate everybody listening. Feel free to write in or continue to write in if you have been. You can email us spoonmob at yahoo.com or go to the website. There's a contact portal. You can write in questions, comments, feedback. If you want to submit a question for a future episode to ask a sommelier, a chef, a restaurant owner, what have you, feel free to do so too as well. We appreciate everybody that's been writing in. Appreciate all the new listeners that we've been getting and all the loyal ones that we've had all along. And uh, without further delay, here's my conversation with Silas Caton, the managing partner over at the Locks Bagel Shop in Columbus, Ohio. Thanks again for agreeing to do this, coming on the podcast. Your name's come up a, a decent amount uh, from some people that I've talked with. I mean, you've lent the space for different pop-ups. Uh, I think BJ did some pop-ups back in the early days of Chapman's. Uh, Andrew Smith has obviously done some pop-ups there too as well at the Locks Bagel Shop. You know, and you also worked with Josh Dalton back in the early days of Veritas. And we've had the pleasure of eating your food at Cosecha and the Locks. And I was excited to, to get you on and talk bagels because um, I don't know too much about bagels. So this will be interesting when we get to that point. But before we get to the bagel stuff, you know, we start all the way at the beginning with you. And how did you first kind of get started with cooking? I mean, was it something that you just kind of fell into in high school? Was it in your family? Like, uh, I grew up in a very large family, eight kids. 
anytime we wanted to cook or jump in and cook, my mom was more than happy to let us. So I always had interest from very young age in cooking. I, I loved doing it with my mom and older siblings. And it kind of just became like a thing that I did on my own. I remember making, you know, brownies and cookies and random baked goods when I was like eight nine years old. And then it kind of just kept going from there. When I was, you know, I'd say a teenager, I really, at that point, we just decided I'm going to be a chef someday. I'm going to go to culinary school. Watched, we watched a lot of PBS cooking shows. So that was a big influence as well. It, basically, it was just, it was almost never a thought in my head other than I'm going to go to culinary school and be a, be a chef. It was really from a very young age. That was what I've always wanted to do. There was a time when I was around maybe 18, 19 after high school, when I think some people you know, you hear the, the chatter of like, oh, if you go in culinary school or be a chef, you're, you're happy, you're overworked, you're going to be broke all the time. And that really started to dissuade me from from pursuing that avenue. And I started looking at medical school. That's my dad's a, a doctor. And so I kind of started looking at that avenue and in that direction. And then I think I really got into it a little bit and was like, you know what? No, I just want to I want to do this. I've wanted it my whole life. Let's just go for it. And also, I, I play a role in whether or not I'm miserable, broke, and unhappy. So I can, you know, <laughs> contribute to, to the end result. So I think I just decided to go for it and did it. Did you work at any restaurants throughout high school or anything like that that kind of helped pique your interest too as well, aside from the home cooking stuff? Or Not really. Um, I would help out time to time with like little events and stuff, but it's more like like fundraisers and random stuff like that. So I got to work with a few people in the restaurant industry. It wasn't like I had a full-time job until I was like 18, honestly. So once once I got like out of high school, I went into, I uh, got a job at a catering company in the town where I, where I grew up. And it was there for about a, a year and a half. And I did everything there from work, wait, waiting tables in the front, prep, dishwashing, you know, cleaning bathrooms. Really, it was a pretty small operation. So the team really did kind of everything that was there. So and by the time we ended up going out of business. By the time we went out of business, I think I was pretty much doing all the food there. <laughs> that was fun. It was a good experience. Really stressful. I think set, gave me a weird foundation thinking that I know how to do this because I can run a catering company in Marion. <laughs> so it gave me some false confidence, but it was still good. It was a good early experience. You're from Ohio, right? You know, originally kind of born and raised? No, no. I was born in Alaska and then I moved here when I was 10. What part of Alaska are you originally from? Anchorage. Was born there. A couple of my other siblings were born in there, and then we moved to Ohio in 99. You get into food kind of in your teenage years and everything. Like you said, you thought about going to med school and decided it wasn't for you, which is, seems to be a common theme with a lot of people that I've talked to, law school, med school, whatever. There's somewhere in there where there's a point where it's like this final decision point, I feel like, and people, you know, if they decide not to do it, they're like, eh, no, I've gone too far kind of thing. Did you get like all the way up to that line or was it pretty early on when you were going through the stuff? You're like, yeah, this isn't for me. Yeah, I was looking at enrolling in pre-med and it was like pretty close to to doing it. And it was going to be kind of a soft stepping into pre-med. It wasn't like full on, like I'm going to go to Ohio State and take full slate classes. I was kind of like, I'm going to, you know, dip my toes in the water of pre-med, um, do it slowly. And then I think pretty quickly before I, I enrolled in anything, I was like, I don't want to do that. I think my dad <laughs> was like, you're going to hate it the first 10 years of your life, you're going to be miserable and just work crazy hours. And, you know, he's like, you're really the low person on the, the chart when you go in there, you know, you worked in just, you're kind of the grunt work beginning. And he just really, really kind of turned me off of it. But it's funny, I did, there's a, a paper someone wrote, I think 
some big university, either Harvard or something, that's called Men in White Coats. And it's all about this correlation between physicians and, and chefs, how there's so many similar personality characteristics, how it's a similar person, type of person that goes into those fields and pursues those fields. And it's a, it's really cool, really neat, because I've met so many people, doctors that oh, I want to be a chef, but my parents you know, said, no way, I need to go to medical school. And I've met so many chefs that kind of same way I was going. It was like, I was in a first year pre-med and then I decided not to do that. Even Abishar, I think, you know, kind of started going down that route. And so it's, it is interesting. There's some, there's something that similar type of person or close to the knife a little bit all the time. I don't know what exactly it would be. I guess probably the ever-changing environment. Every day is something different kind of thing. So you eventually decide to go to culinary school and you go to local here, Columbus State. What made you select Columbus State instead of Chicago or New York, or I know uh, the Pittsburgh area has one or two. What made you stay local instead of venturing out even just across state lines? It was kind of a handful of things. It was, you know, just it was the ease of getting into it because it was local. So I, I don't do well with commitment, <laughs> especially when I was younger. I, I kind of went into it like, I'm probably not going to finish this, but, you know, I'll start it, see where it goes. Once I got into it, it was like, oh, I like this. I'm going to keep doing this. And I can't, you know, I can't stop now. I've already started. So I think it was probably like a low level commitment. I could just like, I mean, it's Columbus State. So not to knock them, they're a great school for some, you know, in some ways, but it was easy to get into. It's cheap. You know, I, I remember I, I enrolled online, got accepted instantaneously. So it, it was just a really, I think a simple, you know, low barrier of entry to get into it. So, the, you know, I did look at um, the CIA and read, you know, a lot of uh, Michael Rollman's books about you know, the CIA and what that process looks like. And, but it was, I think it was so expensive. And that was a kind of the deterrent for me that, again, that level of commitment, do I want to go spend $50,000 on a culinary school where I might not want to do it actually? Because again, you, and I hear people too, that even around that time where, you know, people told me, don't go to culinary school, just go work in the kitchen. Um, you know, take the time you would be in culinary school to work in a high-end kitchen, get, you know, get your, get your experience that way. So I think it's kind of similar. That's why I like Columbus State was because it was a, an apprenticeship program. You work full-time while you're in school. So it was also, like I said, there, there are a lot of reasons to kind of point me towards Columbus State. So it was, you know, the, the work experience I gained from it, the cost, the location, all those good things. Knowing what you know now and throughout your career, if, if somebody working at the locks with you and says, hey, you know, I'm pretty interested in, you know, becoming a chef, owning a restaurant on my own one day, do you think I should go to culinary school or should I just try and find, you know, great restaurants to work at or what, what would you tell them? It really depends on the person. You know, some people do really well with the structure that comes from school and the foundation that you can, you can get through an education, a formal education. But I think I would probably tell most people to not do that. We actually even had someone from Locks do that. She just moved to to New York to go to CIA. And, you know, we didn't, I didn't try to turn her off. But she was really, she really wanted to do it. And for her, I think it would be a good, a good experience and a good, you know, she, she needed something to kind of, you know, a, a plan, a syllabus, things to work through to get to that, you know, the end goal of graduating. So she also is going to work in some kitchens along the way. And the CIA does a great externship program. So, you know, they, there is work experience to be, to be gotten from those programs but i would think as a whole i would i would generally tell people not to go um especially a place like i don't know columbus state it wasn't difficult it was tricky because it's an apprenticeship program there were people that i was in class with who finished for the same degree as i did that went to worked at john eagle in the deli department and i don't know how that got signed off 
but you know, essentially, it's like I'm over here busting my butt three years to like you know working in a in a you know in a restaurant like pulling lines hours. This person's over here working at John Eagle, you know, making macaroni salad, and, and we had the same degree at the end of the day. And ultimately, in the day, they had a you know ACF certified chef on payroll. They could sign off all of their forms and documents, so it was it was it was okay. Where were you working while you were in school? I worked at the Wedgwood Country Club in Powell. And it kind of worked out. There was a chef at the catering company that I worked at. He left maybe six months before they shut down. And so I, I needed a letter, a reference letter to get into culinary school. So I reached out to him. I didn't know where he was working at the time, just to say I needed a, a reference letter. He said, I'm at Wedgwood. Come by and get, get the, the letter. I went in there and he said, okay, you're going to be working here. I was like, well, I don't really want to work here. <laughs> and he said, well, you need to, you, you have to have a job while you're in culinary school. So why don't you just work here? And it was like, okay, that works. Like I was living up near Marion at the time, Marion, Ohio. And so it was like, you know, it, was, it wasn't too bad of a drive to get down there. So I was like, all right. So it started off slow. He actually didn't last that long. He left maybe three months after I started. One of the other, the, the banquet chef took over as executive chef. But so I was there three, three and a half years total. I started, I think, six months before culinary school started. That was a good experience. I'm assuming it was a private country club. It is, yeah. What is kind of the biggest challenge of working in a country club setting? Is it doing all the events or the weddings if they have them? Or is it just speed or having to do the same thing over and over the repetitiveness? Like, what's the biggest challenge in working in that environment? Yeah, I think during the summer, it did get kind of chaotic. There were a lot of events and a lot of, you know, I felt like every day there was some massive event going on. So there, there were a lot of things to juggle. You know, we had, there's a golf club. So we'd have golf events, we'd have weddings, we had a pool, you know, so we managed the snack shack and all the food that came out of that kitchen. You know, so there were multiple like outlets of food that we had at the club. Um, so during the summer, it did get a little chaotic in there. We, you know, our staffing levels went up. We also did staff meal for the entire, all the employees in the club. So, you know, just a lot of people we had to feed on a daily basis. And, but it was great. I mean, it was, I loved the, the, the amount of things that were going on, you know, in the winter months when it, we would close a couple of days, you know, close, close, I think uh, maybe two or three days a week. It got kind of boring. You know, that was, it really was, that was a monotony of feeding people that don't really have the best taste in food, at least back when I was there. So it was a lot of filet mignon and, you know, and when, when you wanted to get fancy, you made it Oscar style, you know, with crowd holidays. So it was a very, it was very old school, classic food. But the chef that I worked with, he, um, his background was in Colombia. He's from East Colombia. And he definitely loved some Latin American food. And he was, he brought a fun kind of aspect that he, from his background, uh, that people, the, the club members there loved that when he did special nights like that, they would go crazy. So it was fun. We had to do a lot of different, you know, theme nights. Honestly, a country club is, it's a great place for people to go and learn how to, how to work in the industry because there are so many things that are going on and there's so many, so many ways to hone talents and your skills. You know, you could do banquets, you could do you know, work the line, you could, you know, you could do anything really. That was kind of the next thing I was going to ask, because we've had a couple of people that have been on the podcast, like most recently, Bill Glover, and he spent years working at different private country clubs. And like one of the benefits he talked about was the hours are good. You're not working nights really like that much. The pay is usually pretty good in terms of what you were going to make in a, in a restaurant setting or something like that. And then also you get to work with, you know, these high quality ingredients because most of these places, you know, have membership. So with all that being said, like, you know, obviously you kind of came up through that system too. Do you think more aspiring chefs like should spend some time working at a country club? Honestly, you should, they should. I'd recommend. I'd recommend it because there is real, there's generally good structure there. And you know, I worked in you know a couple of restaurants where you know it's, you feel like you're broke all the time. 
it, you know, the, the company is broke. <laughs> it's like, hey, that piece of equipment broke. Well, we, we can't replace it. Or, hey, we're, we can't get in that, you know, piece of meat this week because, you know, the, the vendor put us on a do not buy list. It was really nice for that, for, for that because, you know, money wasn't that big of an issue at a country club. And yeah, I, I, I think I joked that if I'd stuck around the country club, I was a sous chef when I left. I'm like, I mean, I could be making really good money right now if I stuck around there for all these years. But it is, yeah, the hours, you know, you're not open. It's not a, you know, there's not a bar scene there. So you're, you know, you're getting out of there a decent time every night. I mean, I'd, I'd recommend it really. So like you said, after about three years of being at the country club, you wind up over at Veritas when it was up in uh, Delaware. How'd you wind up there? Did you just walk in and apply or how'd all that come together? No. So I met, I knew Abishar's cousin, um, Shavik. We were friends through a mutual friend. And I think I posted something on Facebook about wanting to get into photography. And his cousin told me, he said, hey, my cousin's going to culinary school too. He's about a year behind you. So I reached out to Abishar, a friend of my Facebook, said, hey, like I'm a year ahead of you. If you have any questions on the program or you need books or whatever, let me know. I'm just here as a resource if you need me for anything. But we didn't really, I mean, that was kind of it. It was more than just like, hey, I'm here. So then I posted about looking for to get into photography. And he hit me up and said, hey, I... I actually had this extra camera. I'm more than happy to let you borrow it and kind of mess around with it. My cousin says, yeah, I can trust you. <laughs> so we met up at like a random park up in like a little center to exchange this camera. We ended up talking for like two or three hours and just realized we had a really like similar, I think just attitude about industry and kind of hopes and desires and goals and aspirations and, and just saw how we looked at food, how we looked at the food scene in Columbus, how, you know, how it stood at that time. So we just started, connect, we connected really well through that. And then we just started hanging out, became friends. Um, again, we anytime we talked, it'd just be for really long conversations about food and just a, a cool a cool connection. He he was at 1808 American Bistro up in Delaware at the time where Josh's original restaurant. And he said, hey, we're opening this, this restaurant um, next door. Do you want to you be a part of it? I was like, yeah, that's cool. So I was at I was at the country club when we were, you know, became friends. And then basically, yeah, I don't think I was there day one because I had my graduation <laughs> or something like that. But yeah, I think day two or day three, I I, I came up on board and I was there for some of the pre-opening stuff as far as getting the kitchen ready and you know, a little bit of the early menu development. That was pretty much all of Avatar and Josh at the beginning. And then I came on board and you know, we were there together there for a while. What was the early days of Veritas kind of like? Because I know obviously Josh has been on the podcast before. Avishar, not yet, just because he was on Top Chef. And I know that there's certain approved press vendors and this podcast was not going to be one of them. So what was the early days like with you three and eventually is kind of you and Avishar? It was fun. It was, it was a lot of fun because it was like, we can do what we want and we can kind of experiment with whatever ingredients or techniques we want to do. And I mean, we made some really awful stuff early on. And like I look back at photos from early days of Veritas and I just oh I cringe like oh we put that on the menu like <laughs> it looks so bad or it's so corny or hokey just like what were we thinking that why did we think that looked cool which at the time though I guess it was because it, I mean, we got all this critical acclaim it really was like this um I don't know because like at the country club I was allowed to experiment a little bit here and there basically the the rule was like you can do what you want as long as it makes its way into a special basically don't waste product it's like i built like an emergency circulator that i you know still have this day somewhere you know because i sous vide needs and you know did like all sorts of fun stuff there so then it went to, to veritas and i was like cool this is all i'm gonna do now all these all this experimenting and you know playing around with these these fun things yeah i mean we we would sit down there you know i think our weekly meetings lasted a week <laughs> we didn't have them anymore but yeah we you know three of us would sit down and kind of go over the menu and the goal was really to like blow up the menu every week really and you know maybe a few staples that would stay on board or on the menu but it was it was fun it was just we'd get in there early and stay there late and 
there's just a lot of ping pong ideas back and forth off of each other. And uh, yeah, I mean, it kind of eventually morphed into, I think, Eats and Wait was having some staffing issues or whatever it was. So Josh kind of was more present over Eats and Wait. So it became, you know, kind of Abisher and I running the, the show over at Veritas. But it was it was a blast. You know, we did a lot of really cool uh, wine dinners, themed dinners you know, along the way. We got we to go opened up to some very neat opportunities. What was the craziest thing that either you, Avishar, or Josh like tried to put on the menu, and then the other two had to get, like we're looking at each other like, mm, I, I mean, I don't know if that's gonna work. There was this like it was something with bacon. It was something with, like bacon, like a whipped bacon fat butter. I can't remember. I want to say bacon jam, but it was something along the lines of like something with bacon. And I remember Avishar made it, and it was like this recipe out of modernist cuisine. And he made the recipe, followed the instructions, and it was just disgusting. And I remember it was, we were like, dude, this is disgusting. He got so mad. He's like, I followed the recipe. I don't know the problem. Like, mad at us that we were like, <laughs> like, dude, it's not only it's your fault. This is disgusting. And I remember we had to like convince him, like, this is really gross. We can't use this for anything. Like, I made some soup one time, and I and Abishar would probably remember the exact details of it, but I remember it was pretty gross. Just like, trying to tweak too many things along the way we got the end result it's like this is gross we have to throw this away it's not usable i think the, the big fall on your face mistakes weren't as as often because we were good at like kind of catch each other before you know we totally fell if one of us had an awful idea we'd bounce off the other one until it came back and kind of refined to a good idea it's something we could put on the menu and i think the challenge with there at veritas early days too is we would have days where we would have three guests in the building I remember there was one night where we had literally zero guests and it was, that's, you know, it was a little demoralizing. You'd spend all day prepping and then like, what? Nobody bought this. <laughs> so it's like, well, I guess, you know, we're going to start over tomorrow. Hope people come in tomorrow and eat it. <laughs> Is there a dish that you had from like your time there that you kind of remember? Yeah, I think, I don't think it's on the menu at Veritas anymore. It was when they first moved down there. There were these Brussels sprouts that I remember we just like threw every spice possible at it and we sous vide them soften them up and we'd finish them with like lemon or lime and like they were just so delicious i don't know it's like candy even a way but it was they were like one of the the thing i still hear people talk about like all oh, the brussels sprouts of veritas were amazing and it's and brussels sprouts were, are such like a trendy vegetable or not so much anymore but you know they definitely peaked a couple years ago so i'd like to we were a little bit on the early part of that but those are really delicious and i remember like those was my my dish and then um i remember doing this uh lamb lamb dish with um kumquat and like uh cracked wheat or bulgur wheat and it was whipped almond milk and it was a really weird it's one of those things like you see on paper and it doesn't really make sense but i remember the flavors together were so good and it was it was a dish that really made you stink but also was delicious and that, I, that was one of my favorite dishes that we did there they were, looked pretty even looking back at photos of it, it was like hey that actually aged well <laughs> versus some of the other things we did lamb loin kumquat almond and i think it was cracked wheat I read at one point you and Avishar were looking to like go to like Chicago and work at like a linear or something like that. And, and Dalton wound up, I guess, convincing you guys to stay or something along those lines. How far did you get in that process of the idea of? I don't think we got very far. I mean, I think it was, that was back when we were crazy aspirational. I mean, both still very aspirational, but I think, you know, the idea of like, I want to go work for this big name chef somewhere. I, you know, Avatar did, you know, going to you know, New York and kind of pursuing that. But I don't think I got really that far. Just, I have, you know, I said I'm from a big family, a large family, and I'm still pretty close to all of them. So I think it was like, I don't really want to go. I've actually looked at moving, you know, multiple times and it's, you know, kind of never really timed up. Well, you know, looked at Chicago, looked at Nashville three or four times, looked at New York a couple years ago. And just, it's never like really felt like the right fit. So I think I, it was kind of thing where, you know what, like I think I can get, I can do some stages and get some experience that way, but also still, you know, have a good foundation here, you know, close, close-ish to home three, four times a year. 
just eat food and or drive to you know other cities and stuff but it was really like we would just get, you know any money we had left over was let's go spend it on food and i remember somebody said like to to make great things you have to see great things and that was kind of my my motto with that like to make great food you have to eat great food and really you can't you know live in a vacuum and expect to produce anything that's of substance were you at all surprised that avishar wound up on top chef no, not really. I mean, yes and no, because he's a, he's typically a very shy person. So for him to be in a format where I think a lot of the people in the country are looking at him, it's, is is a funny position. Knowing him, knowing his personality, it's, it cracks me up first when I was like, oh, he's going to be on top of that's That's cool. But not really. I mean, like his talents have always been great. He's And he's always like kept his nose to the grindstone as far as like, you know, pushing, pushing, pushing. And so no, not really. I remember I, I got a phone call from Top Chef, like a kind of voicemail. I was like, oh, this is someone from Top Chef calling. And I freaked out. I was like, hey, Top Chef's calling me. And then I was like, oh, <laughs> like they want photos. <laughs> I was like, that's cool. I can have my photos. But no, not surprised at all. I, I mean, it was beyond happy for him to hear that he'd gotten that opportunity. Based on your reaction to that phone call, would you ever do it if they called? Again, he's not allowed to disclose anything. But if he had disclosed something, <laughs> if anything he's told me has been that it was, it was pretty rough and i have kids and stuff now so i don't think i would you know it's a month where you're really sequestered and isolated with you know limited contact so i don't think my wife would let me do it if you're gone for a month so i don't think so i think there are some other shows i love top chef because i think it's one of the few shows where the level of competition is pretty legitimate some of the other shows you watch are just like what are we watching like <laughs> who are these people but top chef you know they're always really really high caliber chefs and i've always enjoyed that watching that show but yeah i think at this point no i would not i would not probably do it give me your best josh dalton story from your time working with him and you can go whatever direction you want to go with that there was one day, I'm sure I must have been on vacation because he was not there. I don't remember why, but Josh walked in one day and like his like ADHD is just like crazy. So he can't focus for long. So he's like always bouncing around and going from place to place. One time I remember I was trying to like shave or something around my, my face and I like gouge my eyebrows and he walked in he started laughing his head off saying no i'm thinking you get your eyebrows waxed and i was like what <laughs> i was like so he went, i remember he and i went and had like a spa day in the middle of the day went to this place downtown delaware and got you know cleaned up and got a haircut got eyebrows cleaned up and he was like wasn't that nice but that was josh and then one time he walked in he was like hey let's um i don't know why we did it we went to goodwill and just bought random suits real funky colors and like ties and vests and put these weird outfits together it's a picture it's on my instagram it's pretty funny but i don't know why we did it but and i've never like after our next day, i was like what were you guys doing why did you guys like, why didn't any prep get done and it was like well i don't know we josh wanted to buy suits so we went and it's just weird shopping day at goodwill but Josh is funny. I mean, like, especially like when we would go to a couple of times, we'd go to Chicago together. Just, he's just a wacky, awful person. He comes across very like stoic, very serious, but Josh is a, is a goofy dude. After about two years or so of Veritas, then you get the opportunity to be the executive chef at Rigsby's, which is no longer around. But when it was around, it was a very famous, very iconic restaurant in Columbus, downtown in the short north. Did they reach out to you just one day out of nowhere? Or did you hear about that opening? Like, how did that all come together? After Abishar went to New York, um, I was at Veritas for, I want to say another six months. At that time, again, business was slow. So I was like, I need to move on. It was just, it was just something different. Uh, I left and Abishar moved back at the, around the time I left Veritas. We were doing pop-ups and we, um, I think we, were, we did some of the first pop-ups in Columbus, actually. And it was back at the, uh, I think it was the... Not the food fort, the ideal or the one of the other commissary kitchens. The the commissary. It used to be called the commissary. Now it's called something else. Food lab? Is that what it is now? 
Yeah, it's called Food Lab, I think. We did some pop-ups over there shortly after they opened, and we were kind of just trying, we were both trying to figure out what was next. You know, we had both had some things going on. I think that was around the time he got contacted by uh, Middle West to open the service bar. But Kent Rigsby reached out to the Thea Wolf over at Ideas at Clone Suit Adventures, and I think he just said, hey, I saw you posted about these two chefs in the pop-up. Would, would they be interested in talking to me about, you know, a position? And yeah, I was trying to talk to him. I was like, oh, do you want to ask? Do you want to talk to him? I'm like, I'll talk to him. <laughs> and how, I don't know how it worked out, but I ended up meeting, meeting with Kent, um, Kent Rigsby, had long conversations and kind of kind of laid out his ideas for the restaurant, where he wanted to take it and just feeling like it was pretty dated. And I think his son was the exec at the time and he, he was wanting to move to Colorado. So I think he just wanted to take it to a different direction. You know, he was, I think, in his mid-60s at the time. And it was just, he was just, I don't really want to be doing this anymore. And we need, we need some young, you know, fresh, fresh blood and fresh energy in here. Knowing kind of the legacy that that restaurant had at the time, I mean, I think like, you know, maybe three years before, like he's a semifinalist for a James Beard Award and, and all this stuff. And, you know, it's among the best restaurants at the time in, in Columbus, probably. Did you have any apprehension of being like the next executive chef of this kind of legacy restaurant? Or was it more excitement, like being able to kind of change things and put your like stamp on some stuff for it? It was ridiculously intimidating. I mean, it really was. I remember even before I had started, I think I was maybe two weeks out from starting and I went to a private dinner that they had. And I remember just walking in and like seeing the the people that I was eating with in the dining room. It was like, man, these I'm freaked out that this can be like my restaurant to run, you know, to feed these people, you know, like just localish celebrities and people that, you know, that come in there on a regular basis because it was a such a you know, a well known restaurant. So it was intimidating to to look around and see like these are people I'm gonna be feeding. These are the this is what I'm you know up against trying to impress, and I'm trying to not just like you know I don't want to tarnish his legacy, Kent's legacy of the restaurant, but also I need to then you know change it because some of the the food is just very dated. So it was yeah, it was intimidating for sure. How well does that go over? Because certain establishments, somebody who was on the podcast before when they oh I think it was um, Josh Cook when he was working in the the Short North. And you take over a place that's kind of been around and everybody knows they have their favorite dishes on the menu. How big of a challenge is that to like take something off the menu that 30 to 50% of the people coming in like really love and look for? And it's like, yeah, we took that off because it's been on here for like 10 years and we wanted to do something different. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a, a weird juggling act because fortunately the GM at the time, Jeff Bullman, he and I became really good friends in a short amount of time that I was there with him. He was on board with whatever I wanted to do. So he was, he'd been there a little longer than me. So he kind of knew how to work the guests, how to explain things, how to kind of, you know, let's take this dish off, but leave that one for now. We can take it off eventually. So he was a good, a good resource in that way to walk through the minefield to determine which dishes to pull and which, you know, which to leave momentarily. But yeah, I mean, one of the biggest ones we pulled off was this, was a Capellini Natasha dish. It was just kind of a weird pasta dish that was, I don't know, it, it felt very 80s in the style of it. And it was just like, I don't want to be. And even like the, the prep for it was very like, we can't use this prep in anything else where, you you know, it's a very like, we prep for this one dish, pan the butt to like prep for. And it's like, let's get rid of that. And I mean, there were a lot of, a lot of issues <laughs> at Rings Names. So Kent was all about it at first. And then I think he got some pretty big flack quickly. And, and it was back on the menu within like a week or two. So there were some things like that. that was just like, okay, let's not fight that one. Yeah, you kind of had to pick your battles on like <laughs> what you're trying to get off the menu and change for sure. You were pretty much there, I think, right up until the end. It closed. I mean, I don't know. You were there maybe like a year or something like that. I was there for three months. It was not long at all. We went in with the goal. Like, I mean, 
you know, said all the right things at the beginning. And again, like I, I respect his legacy and what he established, but definitely there were some, you know, issues that had that led to its demise <laughs> that were kind of, uh, you know, kind of covered up a little bit. So, you know, we, we, I remember he and I, we would sit there and talk for hours about food. And I remember the first time we talked and it'd be a four hour interview. And it was just like, wow, this is so cool. I'm excited to work with this guy, like to learn from him, to take his legacy and carry it on and, and to my fingerprints to it at my touch. Um, you know, we, we had the goal of like, hey, let's like get over the hump. Let's like make this a James Beard award-winning restaurant. Let's do it. Two weeks in, paycheck started bouncing and they started stopped selling to us. So it became quickly like, this is not going anywhere. And eventually it was like, he, listen, I don't have enough money to actually pay you anymore. I'm sorry. So he took over the kitchen again, was running it in the day-to-day operations. And I mean, I th- my understanding is they ran it pretty much dry at the end as far as every product they had in the house. <laughs> but he was, I mean, Kent, like, I mean, he did so much for the Columbus food scene. So like I said, I don't want to disrespect him. Like he, he did a lot for the short North, for restaurants in Columbus, you know, the people that worked in his kitchens, like he, you know, he was really a, probably the most important person in Columbus food scene for, for decades. So Again, you know, it didn't it didn't end well there, but you know, I think he's over at Melbourne Country Club now, kind of in a sort of a retiring role. But no, I mean, Kent, yeah, I wish him the best. And he it was it was it was a not a great experience, but it was you know, looking back, I value my time there for sure. Hindsight's twenty twenty, obviously. I'm sure if your future self could travel back in time, you'd be like, yeah, don't go work there for three months or whatever. But is there anything that you know now? When you're looking at another opportunity, you should ask this question or you should ask. Interview process goes both ways. And I think a lot of people, especially with like restaurants, when you're doing an interview, it's the restaurant holds all the power and they're either going to, they can decide to offer you the job or not, but you can actually also decide to pass on the job if there's something that's not copacetic. So like, is there any sort of like screening question or anything that you can think of that you would pass on to either your younger self or other people like, hey, you should ask a question around this topic and see what what comes back because that could be a red flag kind of thing yeah i mean you know i tell you what when you apply for a job you get references and it almost would be an odd position to be in but i would almost want to ask for references from an employer and if that's talking to the staff you know even hey can i talk to some of the team members that are here to get the feel of what it's like to work there because like i said pretty quickly it was two weeks in paychecks balanced and you heard everyone's you know craps are coming out and like oh oh <laughs> I, I yeah i think i maybe or maybe do a do a stage for a day. Maybe you know spend some time working there to see how well it fits. Um, I think at that time I was just so excited to be offered that position. And like I said, we we connected really well. And what he was saying at the time sounded great. So I was like, yeah, absolutely. That's something perfect. Like this is like gonna boost my career like to a level I I didn't think. You know, I had all these markers. You know, when I was like nineteen or whatever, I laid out all these goals. And, you know, at this age, only this. At this age, that. And I was like, well, sweet. That's like right on target for where I want to be. Like you know, hit an executive chef and. I think I, my eyes got a little big and, you know, kind of maybe missed some of those red flags. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess to answer your question, I would probably try to like spend some time with the staff because they're going to know what's going on. Even if they don't know all the nitty gritty financial details, so that stuff, you know, is, people figure that, that out. So then you wind up over at Salt and Pine. I think you're the executive sous chef over there. A few notable people have worked there. I've asked all of them who have been on this podcast this question, so I'm going to ask it to you. In your opinion, why didn't Salt and Pine work? It's funny. I did. I listened to the Andrew Smith podcast, so I heard his um, <laughs> his response. But th- there was definitely a level of hubris from ownership that I think they thought that they could create this amazing flagship restaurant without figuring out the details of how to do it the right way. So it was. I mean, it was a pretty it was a beautiful restaurant. It was the idea was there. It was you know all these different facets. And when you do sushi, when you do smoothies, when you do coffee bar, breakfast, lunch, dinner, brunch. 
grab and go retail shop. The idea was there, but like the very broad strokes, like none of the detail work was figured out. The economics of it, how is this going to work? How do we pay seven, eight salaried chefs and still make money? <laughs> so yeah, I would say like, you know, the, the big idea was great. The details of it were, were, I don't think they were ever really thought through. And then I think when it, when, when those things started, when we, when you realize this detail time is thought out, I think the lack of leadership didn't really write the ship. They kind of just kind of assumed the problem was with the staff that, you know, we were all kind of treated like we were doing something wrong. And so it was, yeah, ended up not working out. <laughs> Give me your best Kevin Wang story because he ran the sushi section over there. Kevin, though funny guy he's just a goofball i remember like pokemon go was that it's like peak when that <laughs> like opened and i remember i just remember being out with him to like one in the morning playing pokemon go along the side of the mile just like well and i i didn't grow up with pokemon really so like he's like oh there's a charizard or whatever i'm like what's that <laughs> and, like, but he got into it he got into it so like and you know my interest really pretty quickly died off and that was like i don't know pokemon very well but he was just like all sides see him just like walk off the side of the building like where are you going he's like oh there's a, such and such over here <laughs> he was funny he was a great guy i mean he taught me so many things about you know uh about fish and sushi and like you know i think at that time i had a hard time delineating well what's great sushi versus mediocre sushi essentially you're cutting fish right but you're putting sauce on it but really he was the one that taught me a lot of the the finer details of sushi and the quality that should be expected from from sushi chefs so it was fun i got to spend a couple shifts with him you know it wasn't out of wasn't scheduled that way but i a couple shifts with him you know on his station and you know rolling doing rolls and helping out as much as i could <laughs> but it was fun i mean it was it was i mean it's all fine like it was fun for a while there. It was, you know, like I said, it was it was some great people that worked there. I remember looking around, it was like, wow, we got a rock solid team here. This place could be great. And sort I sort of had inkling in the back of my head, like something's not right here, but I don't know. They all seemed really confident about it. So we'll be good. Again, so it was fun. You know, working with Andrew was great. you know, learned some, a lot of things from him. Working with Kevin was great. You know, there was some really good people I worked with. People I still, you know, stay in contact with and have good relations with today. Give me your best Andrew Smith story since he was, you know, the executive chef over there. Andrew Smith, man, he's he's such a a calm person. So like, there was as much like off the wall stuff with him as with other people. Nothing off the top of my head. I mean, like I said, he he was just he was a pretty steady, calm person. He's so kind, like one of the one of the sweetest people I know. So I don't know. I really, I mean, I don't think he was there that long before he left. I think it was it was a pretty short amount of time. So I feel like we kind of you know had a blast opening it up, and getting you know we, we were there before before the opening, doing all the menus and ordering and everything set up. And then I think, you know, if we opened it, it was pretty quickly. It was like, oh, this is a you know hard stop. This is <laughs> this is going to be hard. It's going to be really difficult. And I think it was a little bit of like, a, you know, a month or two of kind of trying to figure out how to operate it the best way. And so it was, it was pretty, pretty intense. And I think, like I said, I don't think he was there that all that long. So like, I love Andrew. He's a great guy. I'm trying to think of any like crazy off-wall shenanigans, but nothing's coming to mind. So once Salt and Pine kind of closes, from everything I read, you know, they were actually able to find everybody who's still with the restaurant at that time, like a different restaurant to send them over to, or you could go work here. Or these are the options for you within our restaurant group. You wind up going over to Cosecha. Was that your decision? Were there other opportunities you were considering and that was just the best fit for you? Like, how did all that come together? I was hired with the goal of opening that restaurant. So when I was hired, like when I met with Chris, I think I was still at Rigsby's. And we sat down and he said, hey, I'm good open salt and pine. I need a, a sous chef. Um, but he's like, I've always wanted to open a high-end Mexican restaurant or a high-end, a, a nicer restaurant, Mexican restaurant. 
And my background, my parents lived in Mexico for a while. I had a brother and sister that were born there. We always grew up with like Mexican food is like we ate it all the time and like more legit, like real Mexican food. So I always felt like I'm not Mexican, but it was like I, we always kind of adopted like that kind of part of our heritage in a way, like not to be disrespectful or anything by any means, but like, it, you know, if we, we felt like we had this cool connection with Mexico, so I loved, I mean, like, you know, eating Mexican food as much as I could, reading, you know, books about Mexican food and just like studying it. So like that was definitely my go-to food that I, I made when I could. So it, when Chris told me that he wanted to open a Mexican restaurant, I was like, oh yeah, I'd love to do that. And that's like, my dream would be open a, a nicer Mexican restaurant. And I say nicer, like, a, you know, higher end Mexican restaurant. So that was pretty cool. Um, you know, I was getting the opportunity to do that. So it was originally, originally it was supposed to be at Cosecha for, I'm sorry, at Salt and Pine for like a few months, like maybe four or five months and then jump on over to do all the pre-opening things for, for Cosecha. But uh, ended up being, I think I was there maybe a year, maybe a little longer than that. Just construction delays and, you know, everything happens for that kind of thing. But, was that like your first time like really cooking Mexican cuisine? Like obviously you had done it before then, but it probably never was super prominent on any menu that you were doing up to that point, right? I mean, as far as a full menu of Mexican cuisine, yes. But definitely, I mean, at Veritas, we had, you know, a black mole you know, on the menu at one point. We, we definitely had some things that leaned towards that direction. Heavily, some, some menu items were heavily influenced by that. And then, you know, obviously Rigsby's leaned more Italian, so I didn't really do anything there. In Salt and Pine, we had, a, I think it was Tuesday, we did like a tasting menu every Tuesday for a while there. And all my dishes pretty much were, I mean, they were Mexican in anticipation of opening Cosecha. So it was definitely like just testing things out and see how they how they work. I would say back at Wedgwood, the country club, even I was doing things back there that back then that were, you know, Mexican. And again, it changed, you know, it became more of like a kind of a, a broad idea of what Mexican food is. And it became more of home to like regional and, you know, regional dishes, things that were tradition to, uh, uh, like holidays or th things like that that you know ha has some significance in culture as well as you know as well as region regionality so yeah that, but cosecha was the first time to do a full-on mexican menu what was like the biggest challenge or difficulty that you faced with making a full mexican menu that you hadn't done up to that point but obviously you have experience cooking a bunch of different dishes and stuff like that but was it like in finding the right ingredients to source or was it the prep or, or like what was the biggest difficulty yeah, I mean, we were we were pretty. I was pretty ambitious as far as like the we we made all our tortillas in house from like we actually took the masa, like nixtamalized it, ground it. I mean, did everything we could. I think the challenge for me going into that was okay. I'm a white guy doing Mexican food. That's a really touchy subject. So trying to like I I think I always told people like I this is not authentic because I'm not Mexican. So I'm not saying it's authentic. It is what heavily inspired by Mexican food. It's Mexican in the idea of like, this is where the foundation of it is. But like, I'm not Mexican. I'm not claiming that this is the proper exact way it's supposed to be done. And then, you know, having Mexican staff. So like, you know, this, my sous chef was, both sous chefs that I worked with were Mexican. So, you know, kind of taking, holding up my idea of what I wanted to do versus their preconceived expectations or, or things that they were not preconceived, but like things that basically you're holding food up against what they grew up eating. So like you make a, you know, mole or a sauce with that. What's well, like, well, how's this taste? Like, eh, that's not really the way it's supposed to be, but like, well, yeah, but this is like really good, you know? So it's kind of balancing those things, like trying to, to bring in the, the staff that I was working with, the team that I was working with, because they were all, I mean, really qualified cooks. 
to give them an opportunity to put, you know, because a lot of these guys, they work in restaurants, they not really have the opportunity to cook their food other than for staff meals. So to kind of give them the opportunity, like, hey, like you want to make a dish, what do you want to make? Let's take it and then let's filter through a lens of like, put on it, how do we, you know, tweak the ingredients or whatever to make it a higher end dish to put on this menu. That was challenging. And you know, like I said, the, the, the grinding the corn was a challenge because we didn't have our own mill. So we use Koki's mills. We'd take it there in the morning. They grind it for us. That was just a lot of back and forth that my sous chef was taking care of. And then he had some medical issues. So once that piece of the chain broke, it's a really hard time to get back and forth. So we ended up, we were still making the tortillas. They're from like the, the masa flour. Still really good, but not not the same level that we were hoping for. But he came back and we got back to doing it again. And it was kind of, you know, sometimes cookies would be like, ah, oh, we're busy today. We can't grind it. Like, well, shoot. <laughs> so we'd go back and do the, you know, the masa flour. And so that was that was a challenge because you never really knew what, until you got to the shop, what it was going to be like. Like, oh, they can't do it today. And then also sourcing the corn was just, you know, it's expensive to buy. You know, it's cheaper now. There's a little more, a few more resources for it. But back then it was hard to find good Mexican corn that didn't cost an arm and a leg. So it was, that was hard. And yeah, so some ingredient level things, some some staffing, some, you know, meeting people's expectations because pretty much all white people have an idea of what Mexican food should be like too. You know, they want to be a platter, large platter with enough food for two meals. And so we are also battling that. Like, no, like you're not getting, you know, a giant portion of everything. You're not going to get five enchiladas on a plate. <laughs> you're going to get two. And so we, we try to do a little, almost like a small plate kind of direction with it. So it's like you could order, you know, order five or six things, you know, for a group of two, two or three people and, you know, experience a lot of different flavors and, and, and then, you know, kind of build your meal. I mean, it was fun. You know, I love the food there. And it really was like, I feel like that was some of the best food I've made. You know, not as perfect, but it was, had a good time cooking the food there. And then I think either it was towards the end or, or maybe you had already left, but you wound up filming for, uh, I think it was like the best thing I ever ate on the cooking channel was filming for TV, everything you expected. <laughs> That was fun. I had actually left already. So I'd been gone for a couple months and they were very kind enough to basically say like, hey, this is your recipe. Do you want to come back and, you know, do it for the TV show? And I was like, yeah, that's great. Because I think they reached out when I was still there. So I knew there it was going to happen. So yeah, so they were very kind to like allow me to come back and do that. But it was fun. I mean, the, the production crew was really cool. The producer, she was great. She was a lot of fun to work with. And we actually did a filming for at Locks for Best Thing Ever Eight. And a lot of the same production crew came back and like, wait, I know you. <laughs> so that was kind of neat. But yeah, it was fun. It was um, it was a lot more takes than I expected. Like, no, now say it this way and point, you know, hold the dish this way and, you know, tip up the bowl a little more. So little things like that. But it was pretty fun. Again, a show like that versus Top Chef is so different. Where it's, you know, you're doing a five minute segment. And at the end, and also it's like you're, you're one segment of what, five on the show. So they're not as concerned with it being like so, so perfect and scripted. At that point, you had already left, but I mean, you basically were at Cosecha for maybe like a year and a half or so, and, and then you leave and, and you head over to start up the Lox Bagel Shop. What led to that opportunity? Coming on the heels of Rigsby's and then Salt and Pine, and I mean, Cosecha was the same ownership. So the same owner, same, same issues were attached that were at Salt and Pine. I went and did Cosecha because it was like, well, Marty signed on to do this. I think an article had already been written at that point, like, that I was going to be doing Cosecha. So it was like, well, I'm still going to do this because it's ultimately I want to do a Mexican restaurant. I want to see where it goes. Maybe it'll be different in another concept. You know, unfortunately, I think Salt and Pine did a lot of damage overall to the company, it's sort of, you know, financially and emotionally. It was good times at Cosecha, but it was also really hard and stressful. And I was just like, this is not, I don't want to be working for these people anymore, this group. And, you know, I, like I said, I appreciate the opportunity to do it because it was it was really cool, but it wasn't a good fit. So I started reaching out to a few different people. When the, the GM at Salt and Pine that I worked with, Corey Armour, really good guy. I had reached out to him because I was applying at Northstar. 
again, I was just trying to get out of Kusecha and, and I was like, you know what, coming in through these last three restaurants where they've just been kind of really just draining with, you know, emotionally and just make me question, like, do I really want to be doing this? Like, did I make a wrong decision about cooking? Um, Cause they were just, they weren't fun. They took a lot of the, the joy out of, at the end of the day, out of, out of cooking and, you know, uh, so I wanted to do something different and it was like, are you the North Star? Maybe it's a little more structured, a little more um, streamlined. Uh, so I reached out to Corey said, Hey, I know you have a friend there. Can I use it as a reference when I, when I apply? And he said, yeah, no problem. And then he emailed me and, um, he said that his friend Kevin wanted to talk to me cause he was looking at leaving. He was going to leave, open his own restaurant. So he put, he put Kevin and I, Kevin Crawley and I in touch and we met up and basically he said, yeah, he's like, I can, he's, I can give you the insight in the North Star. And he said, you know, spoke really highly of them and, and kind of gave me the whole spiel about working there what that would look like but then he said but i'm also looking at i'm opening my own restaurant and i'm looking at bringing on somebody to help me run it um so he's like i'm kind of going to pitch that to you as well as pitch north star to you so i mean he was very uh, very generous very like with you know with his time as far as telling me about north star with the whole process with north star as far as like you know all the interviews like the three three or four interviews i did a you know a, a work or a shift at one of the one of the spots and they got the job offered. And, you know, it's this kind of thing where like, yeah, I don't think this can be the best fit. And and ultimately, I still like the idea of independent restaurants a little better than um, working for a larger company. So um, Kevin had offered me the job. And and it was like, you know what? Like, I really like Kevin. I Like, if he wanted to sell cupcakes, I'd go sell cupcakes with him. Because he just, he, he had a really cool vision for what he wanted to do and how he wanted to kind of affect the industry. And even, you know, like, for himself, you know, he had a young boy at the time, young son at the time. And enough too but he wanted to you know i want to i don't want to be working all the time that i can't spend time with my son so i want to create a you know a restaurant where i can kind of make that the same way for everybody where we're working or making great food we're having a good time but you know we can also live normal lives um, we, we joke it's kind of like restaurant rehab at the locks because we get so many people that get burned out and working in restaurants we're like well come on come work mornings and see how it works and they love it and we've gotten i mean our our team at, at locks is like is amazingly qualified like we have some really, really good people, but it's all a lot of people that didn't want to, you know, got sick of the the PM grind, you know, or, or for working for restaurants that they were just kind of lumped in with a lot of other people. So we, yeah, Kevin and I, we met, um, I want to say in like March, maybe of, I can't remember what year it was. The last couple of years have thrown me off. Um, I feel like it was like 2018 maybe. And then I left in July and then I think I took maybe a month off and then started in, in September kind of pre-opening, you know smallwares, equipment, all that kind of stuff. Up to that point, did you ever think about opening a spot of your own before like you met with Kevin? Was that ever something that you were thinking about? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That was always my goal. My goal is always to own a restaurant by the time I was 30. And I think I was 29 at the time. So I was like, well, I could do it now. I could go and, you know, really push and try to open a restaurant if I wanted to. Um, I had some people that potentially could be, you know, financial backers for that. And it's, it's funny, actually, in the process of interview, interviewing at Northstar, Kevin Malamy, who's the, the founder or CEO of Northstar, he said, like, hey, like, you can go do that. Like, you can open a restaurant at 30 if you want. So you can also, like, maybe you should, like, step back. Maybe that's a goal. You shouldn't, you, you need to let go of a little bit because it's maybe you're not in the best position to to do that. He's like, you know, the worst thing, the only worst thing that a restaurant that fails is a restaurant that just barely gets by. He said, you don't want to be a restaurant that you barely can spy because you're going to be tied to it forever. You want to be a restaurant where you're confident that you can make go and crush this thing and go make it, you know, everything can be. So I think at that point, I didn't want to go force it. I didn't want to go and, again, become a restaurant that was just barely making the buy. I knew I needed some more experience, some more, you know, working with somebody, an operator who could kind of give that to me. So that's what I was, you know, again, working with Kevin, it was, you know, he kind of pitched me on that. I was like, hey, like, come and come and work with me. Like, we'll do this together. You know, I'll show you a lot of the operational things. I mean, he was a first-time restaurant owner as well, but still he was, he had a business degree and kind of more, more insight into that, 
that aspect of restaurant of restaurants. So it was it was good. It was, it was a really great fit. Um, it really is, is a really good fit. Um, but yeah, I mean the restaurant. You know, even it's been three years now, and owning a restaurant was one of those things. Like I think it's gonna look different. You know, it's not going to be the same way I thought it was five years ago, where I was going to open a fine dining evening restaurant and go, you know, be the chef and be online every night. It's just, you know, except with kids and things change. And you know, once you get a taste of that morning, that morning life, <laughs> it changes things. Whose decision was bagels being bagel focused? That was Kevin. Yeah. Kevin and his wife. I think it's Kevin's wife was kind of like, let's see bagels. And he was like, bagels why do you do bagels <laughs> like kevin's like not a big gluten person like he eats bagels but it's funny we always joke like here's the bagel guy who doesn't eat very many bagels yeah he and his wife i think it was kind of thing where they were he, he wanted to open a restaurant kevin's got one of the best resumes of anyone i've worked with like he's got the best resume of anyone in columbus as far as places he's worked michelin stars that he's worked on like and he's he's so well connected in the industry like you name any sh- current chef and he like has worked with them or no that's crazy the way connections he has with people he's on california he went to cia in new york and worked with gavin Kaysen and all you know uh, Corey lee and he's worked with all these you know high-end high-end chefs so once i started talking to him because i think at first i heard it was like uh, north star guy north star guy wants to do bagel shop that doesn't sound that fun but i started talking to him. i was like wow this guy's legit like he actually has some really like cool like cooking shops like he can he can throw down at that point he'd already decided to bagels like he was he was gonna do a bagel shop so it's more like i'm gonna do bagel, bagel shop let's do want to be a part of it kind of thing so and it was you know basically it was we're gonna do a bagel shop with you know again we want to do we're gonna use these techniques we're not gonna highlight them as like a technique but we want to use like good quality ingredients good techniques where it's you know ends up on a dish you wouldn't really notice it as much as like you know uh, an entree at a restaurant i think kind of his original pitch back when it was opening was was trying to find the space in between being like a new york style bagel place and like a montreal style so i mean like what what's the difference between the two um montreal bagels so visually they're a little larger hole and they usually have a more of a crust on them a little sweeter not like a donut by any means but just there's a tinge more sweetness in them and they're always cooked in like a live fire oven so you get some more um textural contrast when you bite into it it's got a little more crunch the chew in there is still gonna be there, but it's not gonna be as like puffy and swollen as like a New York bagel where it's baked in like a deck oven. Did you guys do any like research firsthand before you guys open? Like you go to New York? He did a ton of research. He did a couple of different stages at uh, places in New York. He went all around the country eating bagels everywhere he could. He was did a lot of R&D at, at um, North Star. So I think just through that, he was able to you know piggyback and eat, eat bagels across the country. And he did a lot more of that kind of front end research and um, development. So when I like when I came on board, he pretty much had a bagel recipe that was ready to go. Like he was going to open it regardless of me coming on board. It was more of like, hey, I need someone to help me. I want someone to help me run this. Do you want to be the guy? You're still in the kitchen, but it's not the same. Like you're not there maybe, you know, every day, but even if you are there every day, it's still, you're not there at eight, nine, 10 o'clock on a Saturday night, you know, stuff like that. So having this shift to this kind of new lifestyle or or whatever you want to call it, you know, what was the biggest challenge for you as a person, you know, working so long on the line in kitchens? And now it's like, well, I'm still kind of in the kitchen, but it's like, it's it's two o'clock. I'm going to go home. That's been a nice adjustment. The biggest adjustment and still is hard is is waking up early. I'm just not a morning person. Never have been. I am once I'm up, but like I'm not someone who's like, oh, I can fly the M every day and I feel good about it. That's still a struggle. And then also, yeah, being in a different role. Like I'm like I said, I'm still in the kitchen, still like kind of pushing all the all the food, you know, the food side of, of the restaurant, but spending a lot more time in the front with uh customers and guests and like, you know, interacting with guests on a day-to-day basis is something that I didn't do as much before. You know, I worked in like Veritas as a semi-open kitchen in Delaware. 
salt and pine was, you know, open kitchen. So I worked at open kitchens and like, I've always, anyway, you go out and talk to guests. So I've worked, interact with guests, but not the same level of like running a POS, you know, system and dealing with complaints and like basically running the front as well as the back of the house. That's been the biggest learning curve for sure. When COVID happens, did you guys close it all? Or did you guys just go kind of pivot straight to, to go take out? Yeah, we were really well positioned to pivot quickly. I know we were, we were fortunate. We had a little bit of survivor's guilt because we were able to pivot so quickly and do it successfully, whereas other people weren't. We had just, it kind of just happened that we had started an online ordering platform maybe a month before COVID. I think we heard about COVID and we're like, it's not going to, I think everyone thought, ah, this thing in China and it's not going to affect us. And then slowly started creeping over into, you know, other parts, you know, the, you know, California and Seattle or whatever it was. And once it became a real thing, it was like, well, I'm really glad this ordering system is in place. If we have to shut down and then all of a sudden it became, well, we have to shut down. So yeah, pretty quickly it was, it was not, I mean, it was not hard. We shut the doors basically, which entirely online and phone and ordering, not entirely because we did ordering in person as well, but really pushed for the online ordering and call and ordering. And we'd start opened in, was it December? I think. And, you know, we were kind of feeling like, okay, we're getting our feet underneath us a little bit. You know, January's taken off, February's taken off. I think it's going to work. And then COVID happened. This is not going to go anywhere. Like, we're going to be dead in the water now. I think our goal was like, well, if we can even make like, again, at that time, we thought it would be a two-week stay at home. <laughs> it's like, well, if we can make two weeks, you know, you just make it bare minimum to like pay the bills, break even, we'll be happy. And it like overnight just blew up. And first we thought it was going to be a very quick, a really short, brief period of time that, you know, people were stocking up on bagels because we sold a lot of dozens and bulk orders and like well people are stocking up it makes sense they're just kind of they don't want to leave the house again so they're getting prepared but it just it never stopped and we just kept seeing you know sales grow we we got more efficient at our model the way we were doing things and it eventually you know we we're really fortunate again being in the short north but like a parking lot because it almost acted like a drive-through people would pull up in that in front of the shop we'd run the food up to them to take off and it was great like i said we were so so lucky and like you know we we created our own luck in a lot of it, but I think we did a very good job of pivoting and being being efficient with it, careful um, with how we handled it. And it just, you know, because no one, there was no, there's no playbook for how to handle a global pandemic. So I think that Kevin made really good calls on how to, you know, navigate through that, how to take care of the, the team that we had on board as well. That was a goal. That was a, a fear that we were going to have to cut people and we never had to fire anybody, never had to lay anybody off. I think we did temporarily lay off when we thought we were going to be dead. <laughs> But really quickly, we called everyone back. I think it was like a two-day layoff. Like, hey, everyone, sorry. This is how it's going to be. Like, hopefully we can bring you back soon. And it was like the next day, we're like, hey, okay, everyone come back. <laughs> so we didn't lose anybody. We've like Our staffing levels have stayed really great. We've never really been understaffed. We've been overstaffed for a while. It's like, it's been great. Like, I feel 100% like blessed and like fortunate. It's been, big air quotes, good two years <laughs> for us. Now that it's challenges, it's not all been great. I mean, we had a month where I think like almost every piece of equipment broke, our mixer, our oven, or boil kettle, our walk-in. It was just like money flying out the door for all this equipment that broke. And it's just like, you know, it's expensive stuff that you have to all of a sudden, oh, there's another $14,000 for a mixer. Okay, here's, you know, this much money for a boil kettle. It's not all been great. But I mean, we've had our own, our own unique challenges, but it's, we've been well positioned to handle them. And it's been, it's been really cool to be a part of. I mean, since you guys were open throughout the lockdowns and everything, talking to people during that time frame, some people just really dove into one singular thing, whether it was their business or their branding or whatever. And some people were like, cool, I got like a, the first time I've had like three months off, like ever. Did you just dive like all into the locks? Because like that was kind of the only thing going on at that time. You couldn't really go out and do anything or was it kind of... I don't want to say business is normal because it's obviously a pandemic, but for the most part, like compared to now, like you're still, yeah, I'd, I'd go in, I'd cook the bagels. It was just, you know, we just wouldn't have anybody in the restaurant, you know, eating. 
I mean, I think there's a level of, of um, trauma that the whole world experienced that like, they don't really know how to process it still to this day. It just, it was, it was stressful, I think, for everyone to go be out and about during that early time because you didn't really know what was going on. And I think so many people, there wasn't a clear picture. You know, you see pictures of people dying in the streets, you know, <laughs> and it was like, is this, wait, are we going to die in the street? Are you people just passing out, collapsing? And so I think early on, the, the information we were getting wasn't as clear. So I think there was a lot of, of fear and nervousness and anxiety that, you know, people maybe weren't aware of it, you know, but it was a subconscious stressful time. So I think that it was sort of business as usual, but also I think, there was just a, a level of tension that kind of was unspoken that we all were experiencing. But I think for us at Locks, our goal was to work on efficiency because we knew that, okay, like our, our customer interactions have to be great because they're so brief, but they have to be, be excellent. If it's a 30 second, hi, how are you? What's your name? Okay, here's your food. It has to be the best interaction you could possibly get in that uh, window of time. Also, you know, make sure the food is ready to go when they come at that window of time to get their food. Also, how can we make sure things are traveling well to make sure the food's, you know, delicious when they get home? Uh, so I think at the locks, yeah, it really was about efficiency, but also making sure that we weren't sacrificing customer service and quality, which like I said, I, we weren't on our hiccups, but I think we, we did a really good job of, of getting, getting those things streamlined. And um, we, we've, we've had some really great people that on our team that excel at customer service and they've, they've really helped kind of shape, shape how we, how we do that. It's a year ago, or almost a year ago, Blox was named to Food and Wine's Best Bagels in America list. It was like a top 40 in America, essentially. What was the reaction when, when that came out? Did you guys like know in advance that that was coming out? We knew about it because they asked for photos. you know. So you kind of get an advance from that. That's really the only thing is they asked for photos. There was some connection... We, it wasn't a connection that like sent him towards us, but it was a connection that like knew he was coming, I think, the, the author. So I think we were aware that it was something that was going to be written about. We didn't know what, what context it was going to be you know, written about. I think someone just knew like, hey, like, someone in Cincinnati, like, hey, there's a writer was down here. I think he's going to come up to you guys. He said, we asked him where his next stop where he said, Lock Bagel Shop. So we kind of knew he was coming. So we, we had some advance. We didn't know who he was, but we had some advanced idea of like, they hated his food and wine writer coming sometime the next day or two. They're going to write something. And then we got, yeah, got the request for photos. And then, yeah, so it was, it was cool. We were really excited. It was a little bit of validation, you know, in a way. A lot of times those lists are, you know, and also a level of understanding, like, well, how does this actually affect us on a day-to-day basis? Not much. It's cool. Neat thing that, you know, hang on the wall, you know, pat ourselves in the back. It's like, good job, everyone. We made this list. But I think we're all, you know, we all have an understanding of, like, what that what it means in the day. And ultimately, like, it, we saw a small increase in sales, you know, due to it. Some people coming in, but... Yeah, it's, it's a cool thing to be able to say and put it on our Instagram and, hey, look, guys, we named this list. Not the biggest thing in the world, I guess. But again, it's, we're very honored to be put on the list. I think it's maybe a, a little bit more important than you're making it out to be just because it is bagels. And when people think bagels, they just think Montreal or New York. And that list is like there's Cleveland and Cincinnati, but I think there was like a place in like St. Louis and stuff too. And those are not places that you would ever think, oh, if I wind up here... I could go get a good bagel for breakfast. You know, I think you're underselling a little bit. I think it's a little bit more important than that. I think I'm so used to like Columbus restaurant lists where I've just been like, oh, cool. Yay. And so it's, yes, it is cool. It is, it is really neat. And we were, like I said, we were very, very honored to be on the list. It's like, that's cool. That's neat. And, but I think at a weekend we are like, well, what's the long-term, you know, result of this? And, it, you know, and we've got more, I think we've got more uh, people coming in from the Best Thing I Rate show. 
So it is cool. It, it's like I said, it's, it's a sense of validation. It's a sense of like, okay, we're doing something right. You know, people are noticing us that we're, we're and there's some bagels on the list that are great. Like there's Benjamin bagels. I think it's in Raleigh, North Carolina. Like that place is amazing. There's some really cool shops on that list. Will we see the opening day hot dog special return at all that you guys did a couple years ago? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. The bagel dog. That was way better than we expected. We, we said we were going to do it. Kevin's like, oh, we'll sell maybe five or six. He's like, don't make too many. <laughs> and I think we people called it. We sold out by like 930 because people were pre-ordering them for the for lunchtime. So and so actually we did more. And yes, I think we'll do that again. That was really good. That was really fun. Yeah, I missed out on it. I saw it too late. And now, I mean, this year, it, who knows when opening day actually is going to be with all the baseball stuff going on. So yeah, but do you miss being in the kitchen at all on Friday, Saturday nights? Yeah, sometimes I do. Um, and also, like, if I go out to dinner on a Friday, Saturday night, I feel like guilt. Like, what am I doing here? I should be back there. <laughs> I do miss it in a way. There's just, there is just, just a level of energy and excitement that you can't replicate. And just, I don't know, it is fun. There is, it was a lot of fun. And I do, I do miss aspects of it. I don't miss, you know, getting home so late and never seeing anybody that I, you know, want to hang out with. But there are aspects of it I miss for sure. But I think as a whole, I'm like, it would take a lot of convincing to get me to go back into something in, in a full-time aspect. Like, I, you know, we've talked before about what other concepts we would do. And we've, you know, dinner restaurants where, hey, let's do this dinner restaurant. Like, I'm not going to run it. Like, other than like, you know, I'll be there a couple days a week, but I'm not, you know, as far as, a, you know, five days, six days running a PM restaurant, probably not in my, uh, my deck of cards. I don't know if this is true or not. I've always heard the main reason like a uh, bagel's not good, like out in LA, for instance, is because of the water. Is that true? Or is that just one of those kind of food myths? I mean, if you ask a New Yorker, yes, they'll say, absolutely, it's the water. But no, there's nothing special about the water whatsoever. Someone made a joke one time that we bought our water from New York. Someone made a joke to the guest and it became like a thing where someone's like, I heard you guys bring water in from New York. Like, what? No. <laughs> like, I think that was a rumor that we, we accidentally started as a joke. No, it does not make a difference. No, I don't, that's not true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would assume that air humidity is way more detrimental to the quality of a bagel than... I mean, the flour you use, the, the quality type of yeast, how you store your yeast, how you store your, I mean, how you store your ingredients, how you proof everything, the humidity in your walk-in cooler, you know, how you're proofing, everything is like, can contribute to it. I mean, water is, yes, city water, I don't think it's going to make this amazing flavor. Also, New York bagels, I don't think are that great. Like, they're kind of, I mean, they're not, they're not to knock them, there's some really good bagels in New York, but I think they're the general idea that all New York bagels are the best in the world, and like, it's not true. I've had some good New York bagels, but I've also had some awful ones that are like, this should not be sold. This is like, tastes like you got it from a grocery store. What is, in your opinion, the biggest challenge facing the restaurant industry as a whole currently, like right now? Because there's a lot of different things, you know, going back to COVID. So like, what do you think the number one thing is? I think the cost of goods is scary. Like how, and you can't pass all those costs along to the consumer. And then you have the issue of like concept of value coming into play where it's like people don't want to pay $16 for a sandwich. I'm not saying we're, we're not at $16 for a sandwich yet. The, the consumer determines the value, right? So if it doesn't meet their value expectations, then you're going to have a disappointing guest. So it, it, that is scary. Like how do we, you know, our flour has increased $20 a bag in a year and a half, two years, something like that. So it's getting to where we have, you know, you have to start reading prices, but how do you do that selectively and, and creatively so you're not just raising everything multiple, you know, dollars and kind of sticker shocking people. 
So that's, I think that's going to be, hopefully that gets curved a little bit that, you know, the inflation is, is a little scary right now. You know, same thing with like to go packaging is just, it is a little scary trying to source things to like put your food in is, is a big challenge though. So I think that's a, hopefully that's a short-term challenge that we all have. I think long-term is going to be people, I think are going to be creating more restaurants that are quick to pivot. If there is an issue, like another pandemic to come up like this, you know, how do you not get caught with your pants down, basically, if this were to happen again? So I think, you know, it's cool to see restaurants, you know, like Curtis Duff in Chicago opening, you know, his restaurant during this time. Like he's still going all in on fine dining. So you have people like that that are still all in on it. But I think you're going to have people that are a little more gun shy, you know, owner operators, a little more gun shy of going all in on fine dining. And I think you're going to see some really good restaurants by chefs that aren't as high-end as they, they maybe used to be so and which is exciting because it makes it more more approachable more attainable by general consumer i think most you know live restaurants the price points are so high that it's like well i would do that once every three years for a special event for an anniversary and now you have these you know chefs that are creating restaurants that are more day-to-day once a week kind of restaurants which is it's cool it's just that's kind of exciting for me that it's like these things are a little more accessible with like the accessibility though, there's a certain part of like the dining population that looks for the new thing, right? That wasn't probably the way in the 90s and that's a new development. But if your menu never changes, how do you get people to keep coming back? Like obviously you can still make a great quality product, but... Right, because I mean, fine dining, you're not just food. It's a whole experience of like this wait staff and serving and serve staff and the, you know, the pairings, the drink pairings or whatever. I think... People right now, what I've felt like I've, I've found is that people are are wanting to feel taken care of and comfortable. And so I think, especially in the world right now, where it's just people are still, again, even as subconscious, people are scared. There's still the level of uncertainty about what's next. So I think if you can give people a moment in their day where they feel seen and taken care of, and like, hey, like we... Um, we're going to give you the best service possible, even though we are a bagel shop. And that's, I think that's important for, for restaurants to like keep focusing on customer service. Cause it's, if it's good food and it's always been that way, good food, bad customer service is not a good experience. You're not going to go back there. Customer service is always one of the day. And I think it's going to be just a, a increased um, focus on that to really make sure that guests coming in feel like, you know, they can be distracted from the craziness in their lives and, and, and the craziness of the world right now. Even if we are starting to open up again and things are getting seemingly getting a little back to normal. Is your uh, is your go-to drink still a Manhattan? <laughs> what was that? Was that from a Columbus Monthly, I think, article? Something. I dig pretty deep, so I find obscure stuff. That's funny. Yeah, I think that was the tastemaker's issue. Yes, uh, probably. I don't know. Yes. If I'm at home, I mean, I don't keep a lot of, I mean, I keep a decent amount of like alcohol around, you know, mixers and stuff, but like I can make, knock out a Manhattan or a margarita pretty, pretty easily and it's pretty delicious. So yeah, I would say, you know, home, if I'm at, at a restaurant, I'm probably not going to order Manhattan unless it's like, you know, a restaurant that has only classic cocktails. I do enjoy a really good, a really good Manhattan. What do you think is more important for a restaurant being authentic or being relevant? So authentic, meaning what? authentic to we're a bagel shop but we're not authentically jewish um i think we're relevant in the way that we have some food that is i don't say on trend because i don't like being on trend necessarily with food but i say relevance is probably more important i don't know because like authenticity is tricky because like i said with, with kosecha i never claimed to be authentic but i felt like it was a relevant restaurant you know so i think if if uh you know one of our guys like our mexican line cooks if he wants to open a mexican restaurant like he should he kind of already has authenticity lockdown because what he's going to make is going to be his food so i think his goal would be to be relevant so i think it, it, that question is probably determined on a case-by-case basis but for us like at locks like 
it'd probably be to stay, you know, relevant and like relevant in a way of like, again, meeting people's needs and what they are. And like, that's, that's changed in the last two years. So if we were still doing an older business model of how we were handling things two years ago, you can throw authenticity out the window. Who cares at that point if you're not staying relevant? How elaborate is the home coffee setup these days? Because I saw, I think it was on your Instagram, you took like a popcorn maker and turned it into a roaster. Yeah, I haven't roasted in a while. But yes, I did. You take like an air pop, like the old school air pop poppers, and you can like separate the fan and heating element. You can control them, the dial stuff. It's pretty cool. But I've not done that in a while. But now, yeah, I have a yeah, Breville espresso machine that I use pretty often. It you know pulls a good drink, a good shot. It's not, it's not great. It's not cafe worthy, but it's you know keeps me caffeinated at home. <laughs> then I do a pour for once in a while. It's, it's shifted because I'm working mornings now. So I get so much coffee at work that I don't drink as much uh, you know, at home. But. How has the food and restaurant industry in Columbus changed since you've been involved? What do you think still needs to change? And where do you think it's headed for the rest of the decade? It's gotten a lot better. I remember when we were at Veritas, we did an event in the Short North at this restaurant. And I remember this was like a, one of the nicer restaurants in the Short North. I remember looking at the menu that had it in the kitchen. I remember it was like, it was a Chinese-themed restaurant. I remember there's like salmon with mozzarella melted on top of it. It was something just disgusting. And I was like, what is this? And the whole menu just read like this horror movie. Like, what are these dishes they're serving? And I remember at the time just like looking at the restaurants in the short north. There are so many bad restaurants down here. You know, there's Rigby's too. You know, some good restaurants like that. Legacy restaurants that were great. So I feel like when Veritas opened and we, you know, there are other restaurant openings similar time that they were just not good and really bad. But I feel like it's gotten better where these restaurants are opening they're not really bad anymore. <laughs> I still think Columbus is the greatest restaurant scene, but it's definitely a lot better. And I think our baseline has increased and really risen over the last eight years to where it's like the level of food people are expecting is, is higher. So you really can't open these restaurants serving schlop and get by anymore. It really is. They're just, you know, even if the baseline is not to the level of other cities, I think it's it's still pretty good. There's still a solid benchmark that we can expect from restaurants now. So you at least know walking to a restaurant that it's going to be good, you know, customer service can be okay. Like you're not, I said, generally, there are some really great restaurants that are in Columbus that have opened up. I feel, you know, there's some really good restaurants. There's, you know, I think a couple of years ago, it's like there weren't a lot of restaurants I could recommend to people other than like some small hole in the wall spots. But, you know, like, you know, Chapman's is open. Commune is great. Commune is, is an excellent restaurant. Veritas um, spec up in Delaware is good. There's some really good restaurants that, you know, people can enjoy now and have high-end food and really delicious food. So I think as far as like where, where, where it's headed, I think I think it's headed in a good direction. I feel like it's, we've been on an upward trajectory for the last eight years. I think that, you know, whatever Abishar is doing is exciting. You know, he's got some cool stuff coming along. You know, Josh is doing his little Dalton quarter there. I call it Dalton Square because it's just like that whole vlog. Yes, Dalton Square. So that's cool. And, you know, so I think, and I know that BJ is doing some more things in the short north. So I, yeah, it's, it's exciting. There's some good stuff coming up. You know, I like I like where it's headed. I think there's some some cool restaurants, and I think you know, I kind of like the way we did it. We're you know specializing in bagels. I think you're going to see more specializations like that, where people are focusing on one thing or you know two things in a restaurant, where it's not just this is a restaurant and like we serve American food. I think it's you're going to see more people focusing on certain dishes or regions or whatever it is that are you know something besides. I feel like everyone's doing chicken there for a minute, so it's like maybe we get beyond chicken, but you know, a similar idea of, of focusing and specializing in a specific dish. What's next for you professionally? I mean, it sounds like you guys got a lot of people who are interested in working day shifts. And does that mean, you know, potential for another locks location somewhere else or different concepts? What's next? I think both those are what we're looking for. I think 
definitely another locks. You know, the goal is always a couple locks is where those are going to go. We'll see. You know, we've looked at a few neighborhoods around around town and stuff, and that's always a goal. And nothing has really been confirmed or set in stone yet. But, you know, we're, so another locks would be great. Like I said, Kevin, you know, both of our backgrounds is in nicer food, higher end. I said nicer food, higher end food. So I think that, you know, we would like to open some other concepts for sure. Yeah, I think, you know, in five years from now, the goal would probably be like three or four locks culture concepts. That could all can change, you know, especially with the climate that we are in now. But that's kind of the goal. I think, you know, I, like I said, I love working with Kevin. I love the team we've kind of built there. Um, I love the direction we're heading with everything we're going, you know, we're, we're, we're going through. And I feel good about it. And I think that, you know, keep building on that solid foundation. This question comes from sommelier and general manager Lauren Knoll of the Market Italian Village here in Columbus. She's a previous guest on the podcast, so she left behind a, a question. In an ideal world, where would you like to see the restaurant industry as a whole, not just Columbus, but entirety, uh, in the next five years? Um, man, that's tricky. I like that food has become so mainstream now that like chefs become more mainstream. That is like in a way like real chefs are becoming more well-known and popular. And I guess celebrity because before where used to be celebrity chefs were, you know, these flash people in the food network. And now I think people are becoming aware of, of more of these, these chefs that are running these restaurants that are killing it. that are actually making really good food day in and day out. So I think I'd like to see more of that, of like these, just recognition of like these chefs that are running these restaurants that are like making good food and that it's, you know, it's not just Bobby Flay, Guy Fieri, but it's, it's some really, really legit food out there that most middle class Midwestern America, whatever is kind of unaware of. What question do you want to leave behind for the next guest? Can be anything. You go back to your question. I mean, what's your cocktail of choice? <laughs> you should go to cocktail. This next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, what's the best way to store bagels? Oh, um, we, so we don't recommend storing them, <laughs> eat them. Um, no, but if you have to, we, uh, leave them whole in your freezer bag. And if it's, if it's like a long-term holding, like freeze them. And, um, but other than that, like Ziploc bag, like freezer bag. And then when you go to reheat them, like reheat them, I recommend reading them whole. Usually like put them in the oven cold, preheat to 350. And usually by the time it gets to 350, it'll be warm throughout. And then like that crust will kind of come back to life a little bit. I saw somebody um, on Instagram, he like rinsed the bagel underwater and then popped in the oven and like somehow the steam, it was crazy. We did it, it had a nice crunch to it. It was kind of bizarre, but <laughs> I've not tried it yet, but I was tempted. I was like, I need to try that. It's like this guy, yeah, it's, he has this bagel blog and he like, he rinsed it underwater, popped in the oven and it like somehow brought it back to life a little bit. Would like one of the vacuum sealer things, would that make any sort of difference in like longevity of keeping a bagel like in your pantry or whatever? Like a vacuum sealer? Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, it, it would. So like, we don't use any, it, it just depends because we're not using any dog extenders or anything like preservatives or anything like that. So like our bagels really, unless you're going to eat them that day or like I said, kind of put them in a bag for the next, the next day, like they're not going to be great a couple of days out. But yeah, I mean, you'd use a vacuum sealer, I guess. Uh, you don't want to do the full, the full pull and the full vacuum pull because they'll just switch them. You could definitely do that and you know, pull some of the air out of there. The last set of questions here, we ask everybody who comes on the podcast, get a nice compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far, looking back on it? Yeah, I'd say the chef that I worked with at, at the Country Club, his name is David Jaramillo. Just he he had such a cool background with his life in Colombia and like the things he'd gone through that he he was just he was a scary person till he wasn't. And that makes sense. Like he was incredibly kind person. Like I ended up like living with him for a couple months later in life because uh just need a place to stay for a while but he um 
he's just, he was a really good guy, but he taught me how to, how to work, how to, you know, how to work in a kitchen, how to just time up on things, how to make sure you're prepped on things. Like he, he taught me a lot of just how to the day in day out nuts and bolts of working in a restaurant, but also like how to, he treated everyone with respect. So kind and like respectful of everyone that he worked with from the dishwasher, the groundskeeper. Like I said, we fed the whole, the whole staff. So like everyone that came through there, like he was respectful to them and fed them and really took care of everybody. So just a really good guy. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? Probably a blender, like a good blender. What's your blender brand of choice? Just a couple. Uh, I like Vitamix. Um, I know they have a lot of different versions now, and it's I have like old school Vitamix. So it's like, I'm, yeah, I like Vitamix. I'm not sponsored. <laughs> one thing in the restaurant that you would not fix yourself. So that's tricky because I would try to fix everything. <laughs> I would say... If you'd asked a couple of years ago, I would have said electrical stuff, like 220 volt stuff kind of scares me. But even that, like, I'm like, I'm, I kind of try anything once. Turn, if, you, if you kill the power of it off, you know, at the source, you can tweak it and mess with it. And I would say things like gas lines kind of scare me because I just don't want to like blow anybody up. So I'd say, yeah, gas lines, like if it's something where gas is not getting into a piece of equipment, I probably will not touch it. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own, you know, person gets stuck at the airport overnight. They reach out to you. Hey, where should we go eat? You guys aren't open. I really love Jutai up on Bethel Road. Again, I'm, the restaurants I, rec- I, I talked about earlier, Commune, Chapman's, Veritas, those are all, all great. So I'm kind of outside of that kind of that box. But um, we tried the other day. It was CM Chicken. Have you had that yet? Haven't had it. They got swamped when they first opened because it's like the only Korean fried chicken place we have now. There used to be one before, but it closed. Um, yeah, Bonchon closed a couple years ago. But yeah, CM Chicken is great. We got it at Locks one day for like staff meal and it was so good. And I can't wait to go back there. So yeah, I would, I would check that place out. If you can get in, I've heard like people have gone there and it's been a kind of madhouse. Yeah, I've kind of heard the, kind of the same thing. So yeah, it's kind of like just see what happens when you show up, I guess. Just have a backup plan, maybe. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. Is there any place that uh, you haven't been that you want to go to, haven't eaten at, that you want to eat at? Uh, I'd say Spain is probably. Um, as far as a place I like to go, and there's so many good restaurants. I think like the San Sebastian region is like the most Michelin restaurants in that small area. It just, yeah, crazy, just con- concentrated with all your restaurants. Um, and you know, there's so many restaurants I'd love to eat there. And they also like, I mean, Massimo Pittorio's restaurant though in Italy, that would be great. So I think, I think Spain as a whole is, is probably where I'd love to go. Maybe pop down and try other countries too on there. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? Um, I mean, I've heard crazy stories one time. Okay. So one time again, Amishar was on vacation, but good stuff happens. The Veritas kitchen was tiny and like our, our reach, we didn't have any reach walk-in refrigerators. We only had reach-in refrigerators and it was this really narrow hallway and Josh was on the line. I was on the line. I needed something quickly out of the, the cooler. So I went running back to this hallway and I didn't like move my head fast enough when I opened the door. <laughs> I literally opened the door on my own head and knocked myself out. And it's kind of thing where like, it was, you know, maybe 30 seconds. I was like blacked out on the ground. Like after I knocked myself out, opened this door on my face. And Josh came back. He's like, what What happened? Where'd you go? I was like, I don't know. I think I knocked myself out. So that was pretty crazy. But other than that, like, I don't know. I haven't, I feel like I've worked in pretty safe environments where I haven't seen anything that crazy go down. A few weird fires here and there. Someone at Locks accidentally put a induction burner too close to a real burner and it caught on fire. That was, you know, little things like that. But nothing, nothing crazy. For, you know, I've heard crazy stories, but nothing like over the top. Food or drink guilty pleasure. Is there anything that you know that's terrible for you, but you can't help staying away? Yeah, uh, Taco Bell. Since you answered Taco Bell, and we've had that answer a couple times, what is your Taco Bell go-to order? Yeah, cheesy gordita crunch, but you sub in the, the nacho cheese shell. 
And then you get a cheesy bean and rice burrito and you kind of like smash them together. This is like when you're really feeling gross about yourself and kind of like, it's like beanie and cheesy and rice. It's like all the good stuff, textures, Taco Bell's all about the textures. And so they've got that nailed. But yeah, I'd say those, those cheesy bean and rice burrito. When I was a kid, again, eight kids, it was expensive to feed us. So we'd get like Taco Bell, not a lot, but it was definitely like as far as fast food, because you get like those grande combo meals and it's like 10 burritos or 10 tacos and, you know, feed us all. And so we'd always get like bean burritos and that was like my go-to on the kid. But, but yeah, the cheese gordita crunch with the nacho cheese shell or the cool ranch shell stuffed in there is pretty good. Which of these movies do you think is the best? You can quantify best as either most influential, most entertaining, whatever. Burnt, Chef, Pig, Julia and Julia... No reservations, Ratatouille, The Ramen Girl, or East Side Sushi. Did not like Burnt. Thought that was a weird movie. Ratatouille actually was when I was looking at going to culinary school. That was one of the things that came out. And I remember watching it, and be like, "This is this is what I want to do. This is what I want to be a chef." And like, it sounds funny saying that, like a kids' movie, but yeah, I love Ratatouille. We were just I took, we took our kids to Disney World uh, in January and went to the Ratatouille ride at Epcot. It was so much fun, and it was really cool to like again, kind of call back to years ago watching that movie and go through that experience but Ratatouille is great I've not seen Pig yet I've heard it's it's pretty interesting Julie and Julia I think that was kind of an enjoyable movie I remember the Julia Child parts being really great not really loving the parts with the other person <laughs> yeah there's some new newer movie I haven't seen it yet I forget the guy's name he's an English actor he played uh the Al Capone character in like Boardwalk Empire he's been in a bunch of different movies but it's supposed to be like one night like right before Christmas I haven't seen it yet. It looks pretty interesting, but um, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully it is, and it can get added to the list uh, down the road. I remember a great show. It was a funny show. It was no or Kitchen Confidential. It was based on Bourdain's book. It was one season with Bradley Cooper, and it was that was a it was a really funny show. But it captured restaurant stuff, restaurant life, really well in like in a kind of quirky way. But it was funny. Like Chef was good. I love the the visuals of Chef. The food was looked great. I remember the story just being like, this seems too happy of an ending. <laughs> like, I don't know. But the visuals of it, like the food, I remember all looked crazy. Yeah, me and my friend Ben always joke because he casts like Sofia Vergara and I think like Scarlett Johansson as like his two like love interests in the movie. Yeah, I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> favorite dish, favorite thing you've ever cooked, created, kind of looking back on your career. And you can kind of point to this dish as like your aha moment. Like you knew you could be a chef and be in the restaurant industry professionally for a long time. Yeah, I remember, I don't remember the exact dishes, but I remember, again, at the country club, I was allowed to do this special tasty menu. I remember I did this like lobster tail, this like fake shell around it. And it was, again, it's probably really corny, but I remember like doing that, that whole menu was like a moment where I was like, this is cool. Like I kind of like, I think I'd been there maybe two and a half years at the time. And it was like, it's like I kind of put all my energy and focus into this one menu. And it was, I remember thinking like, this is cool. I can do this. And it like, it was well-received. I don't know if I said about the guests, but it was well received at the time. And and it was just it was a cool kind of reinforcing like, hey, this is me. I can I think I said I can do this. And this is something that I think I have a future in. Favorite Instagram account you follow? This fish butcher shop in I think it was Australia. I think it's fish butchery. It's cool and it doesn't always look delicious, but this dude is like creating crazy stuff with fish. When he made like a like a scallop mortadella the other day and like he just came out of a cookbook maybe uh this last year. And the stuff he does, it looks like it looks pretty legit. I'll have to look that up. Really, really cool stuff that he does. Again, it doesn't always look delicious. Like sometimes I'm like, I don't know that, you know, like whale sperm, such and such thing. Or I'm like, that doesn't sound like I'd want to eat. But like, dude, cool for you for like not figuring that out. 
I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is. If you were, is there a moment, episode, scene that always stands out to you about him? If you weren't, is there somebody else who was like a culinary personality, whether it was a Bobby Flay or a Jacques Pepin or Emeril Lagasse, somebody who who you kind of always gravitated towards like early on in your career? Yeah, I'm not not a fan of Bourdain. Like I read his books. I think I never really got into a show. So I, I don't really have much of a of a favorite memory with, with Bourdain, but I grew up watching Rick Bayless. Like I loved watching him and as a kid and like as I grew up, you know, he was always on the on PBS. Um and I got a chance to like actually work with him for a day and he was in Columbus for a for like a it's called Chefs in the City. It was something that WSU PBS put on. So it was like it was like one celebrity chef and then all these local chefs doing like a TV show kind of like making dishes. So I got to work alongside him for the day and like make his food and like spend the day with him. So that was really cool. It's kind of a cool like culmination of like my history of of following his career and his career but his show and and eating at his restaurants and then finally getting to actually meet him it was pretty neat. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. Lostbagelshop.com is for the for the restaurant. My Instagram, I think it's just Silas Caton. It's nice having a unique name because you can just get emails and Instagram handles and everything just like with your name. You don't have to be creative about it. You guys are open, uh, what, like every day? Seven days a week. Yeah, 7.30 to 2. If you come at 7.20, we can be convinced to feed you. We're not, <laughs> we're not turning people away, but yeah. It's an awesome space. You know, you guys have done different pop-up dinners in there too for for other chefs and been to to some of those and and the bagels are are really awesome. It's, it's a, a bigger menu than I think you would initially think, you know, because you guys got the sandwiches and the different kinds of bagels, but then there's like the cream cheese section and then the the jam. So like there's a lot of options to play with too as well. So you can you can mix and match and yeah, I mean it's been awesome to kind of see the success of it. Looking forward to whatever's next for you guys too as well. But as always, stay in touch. Ever need anything from us, feel free to let us know. Always happy to help support everybody that supports us and comes on the podcast and everything. And otherwise, yeah, we'll be on the lookout for the the bagel dog whenever MLB gets their shit together. <laughs> It'll happen, yeah. We're always doing fun specials. So yeah, the, the bagel dog will definitely happen. We have a list of like R&D stuff and upcoming holidays and special events we kind of are aware of to try to you know, do a dish or a bagel specifically for that. So it's on the, it's on the list, it's on the calendar. A big thanks again to Silas for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of one of his off days, afternoons off there. Like he talked about kind of the work schedule, it's a little bit more life balanced compared to, you know, restaurants where, you know, you're closing the kitchen at, you know, 10, 11, breaking everything down, cleaning, maybe doing some, even some prep for the next day, depending on what the menu is going to look like. And then popping back in early to do more mise en place and everything like that. So a little bit different structure. Pretty awesome to see them have success, continue to have success throughout the COVID pandemic and everything too as well, where that was, got real nitty gritty for a lot of places. So they were able to make it through there and continue to have success and continue to be busy. I mean, they do, you know, Andrew Smith has held some pop-ups there before. I think they had like a comedy show there too as well. So they're always kind of branching out in different events, you know, that they can do at night because they pretty much are open, I think, daily from like seven to to two or something like that. So nighttime, the space kind of becomes this almost like incubator for different up and coming things that could, you know, potentially flourish into their own thing one day. So awesome to see them contribute in multiple ways to the food scene across the city. So really appreciate Silas for coming on. You could follow him on Instagram at Silas Caton. Also follow him at The Locks Bagel Shop on Instagram too as well. Make sure to follow us at Spoon Mob. Check out the website, spoonmob.com. Follow, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from. We're on all the major platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Amazon, Audible, iHeartRadio, like wherever. 
click the subscribe or follow button. You always get the new episode, the latest release, which comes out on Thursdays, downloaded right into your device podcast player. So all you have to do is maybe download it if you're going offline where there's no Wi-Fi or internet or anything, but otherwise play it that morning and stay up to date on kind of who we got coming on and everything. So a lot more cool stuff on the way too as well. Some really interesting stuff too. Super proud of the episodes that we have come up and some of the people that we're going to have on that are around the edges of the hospitality industry. They're involved in it, but not in the traditional way of being a chef or a restaurant owner or something like that. So really, really cool stuff coming up. So appreciate everybody listening. If you're new, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you for your continued support. And we will talk to you guys next week.